and pray than do anything else in the whole wide world. And it's the vision that God gave to Mark that brings him here to us today. And as we traditionally do with our conferences, we want to have Mark Bubeck open up the first session with his address to us. Mark, would you join us? Thank you so much. I'm most honored by those kind words and uh, so very glad to be here. And it's wonderful to be welcomed with sunshine and warmth after having spent uh, the winter in Arizona. Uh, we, uh, we asked the Lord, many of us, to watch over the weather. And uh, we're, we just want to honor him by thanking him for this beautiful sunshine and, and that uh, he honored our request that he would just somehow subdue the storms and the enemy's attempt to curtail the weather. I'm also so thankful to have Anita back with me. You remember last, two years ago, um, my dear wife was facing a battle with Hodgkin's disease, and you prayed, many people prayed, and she prayed, really yielded it to the Lord in a very beautiful way, and was willing to go to be with him if that was his time. But the Lord had other plans, and I'm happy to say that that malignancy is in full remission, and uh, we praise God. I thought it might be good uh, to hopefully let you laugh a moment. You know, it's good for us to laugh. And uh, what I'm going to share with you has nothing to do with the sermon. I hope you will see yourself someplace in this simple little story that came to us through our pastor, Don Ingram, uh, just about a week ago. And I thanked him for it because, you know, I think whenever you go to a meeting like this, especially if you're a pastor, you ought to go home with one good story. And uh, so this is one I think you'll probably want to write down. At least I did. It's short and simple. The church secretary answers the call to the church. A very gruff, obvious, uh, hard-working rancher-type person is on the phone. His first words, Hello, may I speak to the first hog at the head of the trough? Secretary, what did you say? May I please speak to the number one hog at the trough? Secretary, if you mean the pastor, I'd appreciate it if you'd refer to him as pastor, reverend, or Dr. Jones. Caller. Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to offend you. I was just calling to let him know that I'm giving a check for $200,000 to the church building fund. And I wanted to tell him. 
secretary. Oh, just a moment. The big fat pig just walked in. I don't know where you fit in that story, but I went on a diet. <laughs> a passage of scripture that has always uh, sort of startled me when I've read it, I want to read to you as we begin our thoughts this morning. First Thessalonians 2. And I want to begin reading with verse 13 from the NIV. 1 Thessalonians 2.13 And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men, but as it actually is the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. But brothers, when we were torn away from you for a short time, in person, not in thought, out of our intense longing, we made every effort to see you. For we wanted to come to you. Certainly I, Paul, did again and again. But Satan stopped us. For what is our joy? What is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and joy. The title may seem a little long and uh, difficult. Satan stopped our spiritual standard bearer. Now what is a standard bearer? The dictionary defines it this way. Leadership of recognized excellence. A model of established authority. One proven worthy to give guidance. An officer in the military worthy of respectful emulation. 
Now, according to that definition, which is a good one, standard bearers in the Christian faith are those people who have walked with God in such exemplary conduct and such overcoming a victory that they deserve to be our standard bearer. We should imitate their conduct. Now, few if any of us would doubt the fact that the Apostle Paul is a worthy standard bearer. Not only in history, but today through the scripture, through studying his life and coming to know him personally through his walk with God. He was one worthy to give us guidance. Now Paul himself was humbly aware of the fact that God had made him a standard bearer. And I think in a real sense of the word, every Christian ought to sense that that's his responsibility before God and before others to be a standard bearer, one who is worthy because he walks before God in recognized excellence and in overcoming victory and triumph. And Paul wrote uh, to the Corinthians, and of course in a number of other passages, as here in First Thessalonians, this thought, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And I think the Apostle Paul was probably history's leading example of one who was a standard bearer. Not flawless, but one who let God live his life in him and through him in such a way that we can look at him and want to be like him, want to follow the example he set. And uh, despite those realities, Paul states in this text today that when he wanted to return to the Thessalonians, on two occasions he tried very diligently to go back to them because he had been torn away from them by the persecution. But he said, Satan stopped me. I don't know about you, but that jars me a little. Because uh, this is the man who taught us how to walk in the will of God in an invincible way. He's the one that wrote the Philippians and said, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. But in the simple reading of the word, he could not return uh, to encourage and build up the Thessalonian believers. Satan stopped him. 
Now, it's good to have a standard bearer. I'm sure that most of you have had several who have sort of uh, met the criteria for that kind of a influential person in your life. And uh, I've had some that I cherish. And one of those that has blessed both Anita and me, and one who is revered to the memory of many of us, is Brother Andrew of God's smuggler fame. And Anita and I just celebrated our 50th anniversary by receiving a gift from our children to take a trip to Europe, to Holland and Germany. And we were privileged to renew our friendship, 40-year friendship with Andrew, by going to his home and spending three days there with him. And that was so refreshing to me. What a humble man of God he is. What a, what a standard bearer. What a challenge to the church, to all of us who know the Lord. He's a very humble man after reminding people that he never went to high school and that he only spent uh, uh, two years in a missionary training school before launching out into Christian ministry. He states, and I quote, I'm just a dumb Dutchman, the son of a blacksmith, and I work for a Jewish carpenter. In other words, I'm just an ordinary guy who's tried to listen for God's calling in my life and then obey. Now, educated or not educated, ordinary or extraordinary, Andrew is a standard bearer. He's a real champion. Perhaps no man has more illustrated to the worldwide church that God's, or Satan stops, or God starts. Now, Andrew just tweaked our noses pretty strongly back when we all thought the Iron Curtain was closed. And there was no possibility of penetrating it with the gospel until Andrew came along and told us stories that caused us to weep with joy at what God was doing. Somehow, the scripture wasn't enough for us. We needed a standard bearer who did it. And we honored him. In his newest book, The Calling, Andrew relates his experiences surrounding the Russian invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. You remember they were occupying Czechoslovakia, but only had a few troops there. When under Dubček, the Czechs began to exercise their freedom. And for a number of years, under Alexander Dubček, they enjoyed that. And finally, the Russians had enough. And so they sent occupying troops, and they moved in with their tanks and all of their power 
And uh, the moment Andrew got the message of what was happening over the news, he loaded his station wagon with Russian Bibles, Christian Czech literature, and he headed for the border as fast as his Citroen would go. And because there were no speed limits in Europe in those days, he made it to the border in one day. And when he came to the border, his eyes looked and he could scarcely believe what he was seeing because there were two lines of traffic coming out of Czechoslovakia, stretching back as far as his eyes could see, and nobody going in. except Andrew. He drove up to the border. The Czech's official said, uh, with a very sad look, don't you know what's happening in my country? Yes, Andrew said. Yes, sir. And that's why I'm here. That's why I'm going in. Well, in the confusion... They stamped his passport, even though he didn't have a visa. And he went in with all of his Bibles, all of his Christian literature, and even when he came to the Russian checkpoint. They were so startled, and God made seeing eyes blind. They never saw that, all those Russian Bibles. And so Andrew went to Prague. And on the first Sunday, he stood in the pulpit of a church where he'd preached before. And, of course, they were broken-hearted people. Church was jammed to the doors. And they were all wanting to hear what he had to say. And after assuring them that um, the Christians in the West were praying for them in this time of great trial, uh, he said to them why, in his judgment, this was happening. He preached about why the Russian crackdown had come. And I quote it directly. If we do not go to the heathen with the gospel, they will come to us as revolutionaries and occupation armies. That's rather sobering. And the people got the message. They knew what he was saying. Under Alexander Dubsek, they had enjoyed a great deal of freedom. And they'd used the freedom to go to the West, to buy their new bicycles, their television sets, their recorders, their radios, some even new cars. And they hated the Russians because a few of them were still in their country. And they got the message. God broke their hearts that day. Many of them came to the front of the church and they wept. And they took Andrew's Russian Bibles. And they began to go to the occupation troops. With the love of God and the book of God. And they gave 
the Bibles to these occupying troops. And a most marvelous thing happened, something that Andrew hadn't really anticipated. And let me quote it to you again. Something amazing happened, something we can never fully explain. I later received reports from several cities that within 10 days, the Soviet leaders had to recall and replace the entire Russian occupation army. They had become completely demoralized. I have to believe that the love of God and the Bibles shared by the Christians played some part in their withdrawal. After all, the Bible, the word of God changes people and change people, change the situations around them. How we praise God for standard bearers who walk before God with faith and confidence that's willing to face any obstacle and do the will of God. In the past, he went to the communists. Now, he's going to Islam. And God is doing marvelous things. There are probably no people more close to the gospel than the Muslims. There's no challenge greater to the message of Christ than Islam. And if we don't go to them, we may be one day like the Czech people having them come to us in ways we don't want. Well, in light of the spiritual battles of life, there's so much we could say about these words, Satan stopped us. And uh, we're not going to try to cover all of that, but I do want to direct your minds to, and hearts to some important truth. What this statement says to us, lifted mostly from the text before us. First of all, it speaks about the immensity of Satan's power and strategy. Now, most of us were reared in a Christian culture that had very little to say about the devil. Oh, we heard that he was existed and that he was real. But somehow as Christians, we never really took it very seriously. And as a young pastor and a more mature pastor, I never remember meeting another pastor who believed that some of the emotional and psychological problems that their people were facing could be because of strongholds of evil that had started to control them. We substituted psychology for biblical truth. And we all became little psychologists. Not that there isn't a place for good Christian psychological counseling, but oh, when we forget the reality of the kingdom of evil, 
we have done great injustice to the scripture and to the truth of God. And it is tragic when that takes place. Now those of us attending this conference, we now hold a more biblical view. We recognize that spiritual evil, supernatural spiritual evil, is very real. That it does come close to us and to our people. And that they do have to wrestle, as Paul said, with principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and wicked spirits. That's why we're here. And that's a very healthy development. I'm sorry to say that there are those who really oppose us because they still believe that Satan, as a defeated foe, really can do nothing to a Christian. And yet those of us who have a more biblical view, and certainly my judgment, we must be careful. In this day of renewed interest, in balanced biblical teaching on the devil and his kingdom, we must be very careful that we don't assign to him and elevate his work to an unbiblical level. We must not overestimate the devil's ability to wield power in God's universe. Satan only has as much power as God lets him have, and not one tiny bit more. We must hold on to that and understand it. But Paul's words, Satan stopped us, do remind us that even though the devil remains under divine restraint and he's still answerable to God, he does wield very effective opposition. He is not to be taken lightly. He is not a joking matter. I wince a little when I hear people joke about the devil in a non-respectful way for the awesome created power that God gave him. And now that he wields effectively against us. Now how does he use his power? How does he wield his strategy against us? First of all, he uses it to arouse political and religious opposition. Notice in the first five verses of the second chapter how well that is stated. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error. See, that's what they were charging against Paul. Or impure motives. Nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men 
but God who tests our hearts. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. Now he's talking about the devil's opposition. But he's also talking about people. Because one of the things we need to understand that even though the devil has capacity to oppose us through the dynamic of his spiritual oppression, his major work is through people. People that he controls. This is the way Paul stated it in 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. Those who oppose him, meaning those who oppose God's servants, God's uh, uh, proclaimers of truth, he must gently instruct. You see, your attitude toward people is different than your attitude toward the devil. Even though the devil is using them, the love of God flows to them through you. He must gently instruct in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth and that they will come to their senses and escape the trap of the devil who has taken them captive to do his will. See, that's the program of the evil one. And that's what Paul, and that's what the Philippians, and that's what the Thessalonians were experiencing. That the devil had taken people captive to do his work, to do his will. Religious leaders, political leaders. That's always been his program. Revelation 12, chapter 12. You have a clear illustration of it, which is an apocalyptic description of the dragon, the evil one who was opposing the birth of Christ. And it's mentioned that he was poised before the woman, which is a picture, I believe, of Israel, to kill the man-child that was born a king. Now, how did the devil do that? Through Herod. He used people. And he's still doing that. Taking people captive to do his will. The devil uses people. And we must be careful to hate the devil who's doing his wicked work through people, but like Paul said, to be gentle. Understanding that this person is different from the evil one who controls them. We love them. We gently instruct them, especially where they may be believers. At our recent missionary conference in our church, a couple from Alaska were there, and, and one of the stories they told was of a uh, professing Christian, um, national Native American there in Alaska went into the gospel preaching church with a hammer. And when they found him, 
He was smashing the pulpit and the pews and everything in there with his hammer. And when finally they came to him, they said, man, what are you doing? He said, the demons are telling me I must do this. Captive to do the devil's work. And so proper biblical theology recognizes that the devil uses people. He wants to control them. In fact, as you read Ephesians 2, verses 1 and 2, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So, in a real sense, every one of us has been taken captive to do the will of the Satan before we were saved. We were under his control. And so, it's good to remember, Satan program is to control people and use them. How does he use his power and strategy? He wants to stop people from hearing the gospel and thus be saved. Look in the second chapter at verse 15 and 16 where he makes that so clear. Who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove, drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. Well, I hope we'll never lose sight of the fact that the thing that the devil most wants to do is to keep us from sharing the saving power of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And we must never become so occupied helping fellow Christians get free that we forget that our major task is to share the gospel so people can be born again and have eternal life. And uh, Satan hates that and he opposes it I remember in our evangelism explosion ministry in the churches that I pastored, I heard it a number of times. Something to this effect. My most difficult day used to be Blue Monday. Now it's Terrible Tuesday. That was the day we went out to evangelize in our EE program. And Satan just really battled that. He hates it. And Paul recognizes that he uses his power and strategy to stop people from hearing the gospel. He also uses it to undermine the confidence and faith of new believers. Ah, we need to understand that. Look in the third chapter, those first few verses. So when we could stand it no longer, we thought it best uh, to be left by ourselves in Athens we sent Timothy, who is our brother and God's fellow worker in spreading the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you 
in your faith so that no one would be unsettled. No one would be unsettled by these trials. You know quite well that we were destined for them. In fact, when we were with you, we kept telling you that we would be persecuted, and it turned out that way, as you well know. For this reason, when I could stand it no longer, I sent to find out about your faith. I was afraid that in some way the tempter might have tempted you and our efforts might have been useless. What's Paul recognizing? What was behind all of this persecution that came to him and to the other leaders who were sharing the gospel and nurturing the new believers? He wanted to get at those new Christians to discourage them. And I believe that we really need to help pastors understand that when you lead somebody to Christ, it's so important not to just uh, let them try to walk with the Lord without dealing with the ways in which perhaps their lives have given much ground to the kingdom of darkness. Because the enemy is going to hit them pretty hard. And if he has a lot of ground that's been a part of that person's life and perhaps his heritage for many years, he's really going to make it tough on them. As I was meditating on this point, the Lord brought to my mind one of the most thrilling converts in my really first full-time pastorate, a young man by the name of Tony, a Roman Catholic young man, and his friend invited him to our church. And Tony was there about two or three Sundays when God the Holy Spirit just really moved on him and he came forward with great tears and uh, expressed his repentance to the Lord and his faith in the Lord Jesus. And it was a beautiful thing to see. He just literally blossomed. And uh, he was so exuberant, so full of what had happened to him. He just had to share it with everyone. His siblings, his mother and dad, his uh, uncles and aunts, all who were a part of Roman Catholicism. And he just wouldn't quit sharing with them. They needed to be born again. He had experienced it with great joy, but after, and it seemed like God had sort of put a shield between him and the activity of the enemy for a time, but for reasons known only to God, he seemed to lower that protection, and, and Tony began to experience a lot of, of a battle and frustration in his spiritual life, and it wasn't long until we began to notice that he wasn't quite as faithful to the services. The enemy had moved in. Oh, how I wish I'd have known back then what I know now. Because I think we could have seen him protected, not from persecution, but from that kind of control. Since I've been here, we have some dear friends, Ram from Fiji, and uh, he was telling me just yesterday about a Hindu family, wonderfully saved, and 
he participated in their baptism. And then they noticed that that uh, after a time they began to kind of lag off from being at church. And and uh, finally Ram went to them and and talked to them about it. And, and the man said, the spirit I served before is just too strong. Isn't it sad that we leave people without understanding how to do battle with evil? So they're wounded. One of the devil's chief tactics. Thank God that Ram is here. He wants to go back and and begin to teach his brothers and sisters how to better help Christians. The fourth a way in which the devil uses his power and strategy is to make God's servants suffer discouragement and defeat. And I think we ought to really be alert to this, that Satan doesn't just uh, focus uh, upon uh, new Christians to discourage them. He comes against battle-hardened veterans like the Apostle Paul. And you see, that he knew you haven't learned that you need to understand it and know how to walk in your protection and how to claim the protection of the Lord in a very dedicated daily way and clothe yourself with your Lord and the victory of his power because the enemy wants to overwhelm you. Well, that's one picture of what this tells us. But there's another very important picture. That Paul's word, Satan stopped us, speaks about the extensiveness of God's sovereignty. And I love this. Because it helps me understand something of the awesome wonder of our Lord. That he created Satan. Fully knowing that he would rebel. And lead one third of the angels in rebellion. And yet our God. Is so almighty. So powerful. That that did not in any way. Unsettle him. He keeps Satan. Under his authority. I like what Erwin Lutzer has written in his book. The Serpent of Paradise. He states it this way. The devil is just as much God's servant. In his rebellion. As he was God's servant. In the days of his sweet obedience. Even today he cannot act. Without God's express permission. First demonized. Nor such as a single plan without the consent and approval of God. We can't quote Luther too often. The devil is God's devil. 
Now you think about that. That tells you much about God's sovereignty. The immensity of his power. The wonder of his sovereignty. The more I watch it, the more I marvel at the immensity of God's sovereignty. The spiritual battles of life, even when they're direct assaults of the devil, always have a divine purpose. They fit within the scope of God's sovereignty. Those of you who've read The Adversary, I've read the story Dear oppression. And it was troubling to her as a little girl. But I want you to know it was much more troubling to Anita and me. And um, yet now we look upon it with joy. Because of what God taught Anita and me and what he taught Judy. Judy's now mother of two lovely girls and a wonderful Bible teacher who is uh, constantly teaching women in her neighborhood about the Lord and the gospel. Now, how does God use his sovereignty to empower human servants to engage in battle and still give out God's word? Notice in uh, the second chapter, again, there in those first verses, he makes that so plain. That in spite of all the opposition, Paul still gave out the word of God. And these people were still saved and established in the faith. And the devil's strongest opposition was not sufficient to curtail Paul's aggressive sharing of the gospel with the Philippians and the Thessalonians. And this is God's plan. It's his plan to empower human servants to be able to demonstrate visibly not only to other Christians or even non-Christians who are watching, but to the very principalities and powers that exist. That human beings anointed and yielded and walking in humble obedience to God. Just walk all over the devil in his kingdom in victory. What's wonderful when you see that? When it's demonstrated just last night, some of the folk who are attending this conference uh, mentioned about reading my book, uh, The Rise of Fallen Angels and the story in there about our trip into Romania back when Ceausescu was the tyrant who ruled that nation so ruthlessly. It was the toughest of all the communist nations to get into. And uh, Dr. Nick Gorgita was pastor of the Second Baptist Church in Aradia. And he's a medical doctor. And we had a number of doctors in our uh, church. And two of them, Dr. Chandra and Dr. Ham, together with myself, 
uh, Joseph Sohn had urged us to go to Romania because these doctors would encourage Dr. Nick. And we learned about the fact that the Christians needed medicine badly. They couldn't get it. And some of them were in threat of dying. And so Dr. Ham got this word that was filtered out to us, and he prepared well over $2,000 worth of medicine. And Dr. Chandra, who's a cardiologist, filled a huge across uh, uh, Hungary as we went to the border we prayed the smuggler's prayer Lord you made uh, blind eyes see now make seeing eyes blind and I had put uh, I had put ten of my books right in the center of a little carry on piece of luggage covered them up with clothes and we came to the border, and I knew all those books. The rest of them were on the uh, on the backside of my uh, uh, carry-on luggage. There were some big pockets, and uh, and I had put them in there. And we came to the border, and I was so nervous. And I prayed, but I was still nervous. <laughs> and I was pacing back and forth under the shed where we were waiting for the authorities to come and examine us. And all of a sudden I heard up in the rafters a dove. And I looked up and there was a most beautiful dove. And all of a sudden I remembered the Holy Spirit had come on the Lord Jesus in the form of a dove. And that, that burden of worry was just lifted. I didn't know how the Lord would do it, but I knew he would do it. Well, the man came and he told us to put our luggage on these cement tables. Those who've been there know about it. And you stand by the table and the inspector comes and examines your luggage. And I, he came to my table and I had my little suitcase open. And I saw him dig down on one end of the suitcase. And I saw him dig down on the other end of the suitcase. I said, oh, good, he's not going to look in the center. And just as I thought that in my heart, he put his hands down, he pulled the clothes apart. And I looked. I didn't see any Bible or any book. He looked. He didn't see any books. And I'm thinking, where did I put those books? In my garment bag, he even looked inside my, the suit pockets that I had in there. But he never looked in the pockets on the other side. He told me to put it in the car. He never saw one of them. I'm so excited, I almost forgot about the doctor. And uh, the next one was Dr. Ham, who had the medicine for the Christians. And... Uh, it was, he had put it in a kind of a round sort of bag that was about 
foot and a half, two feet high. And it had a string on the top of the pole. And he had opened it and put it on the ground right by his table. And he went through all of his things. But when he never saw that ever saw it. And we know how important it was because Dr. Chandra had his open and uh, we were going to take that to the hospital anyway, but that man wouldn't even let us take it to the hospital. He confiscated it right at the border and took it to the hospital. And wonder of wonders when we got I can't understand that. I don't know what happened. But I know that the greatness of God's sovereignty was sufficient to make my eyes blind to books <laughs> as well as that guard's. That's our God. That's who he is. God keeps Satan in his kingdom under his sovereign control. Have you noticed how the defeats of uh, people experiencing the battle have a way of humbling them? You see, the devil is still God's devil. And one of the passages of Scripture, I hope that you've, you've seen it before, but if you haven't, let me just quickly refer to it. It's back in Matthew 18, that marvelous passage that deals with um, forgiveness. And we all know how important forgiveness is to freedom. Um, those of you who counsel know that if a counselee holds bitterness and unforgiveness in their heart, they will not get free until they deal with that. It's just so important. And in this parable Jesus gave to the disciples about forgiveness. Remember, it's that marvelous story, the close of Matthew 18, where he tells about um, a servant of the master who was uh, forgiven his enormous debt, millions of dollars. It was just canceled. And God let him go. He was afraid. Then you remember that this forgiven servant went out and found somebody who owed him just a little bit. But he was very unforgiving of that debt. And he demanded that it all be paid and even had the fellow thrown into prison. And then you remember what Jesus, what the master said in verse 32. The master called the servant in. You wicked servant. He said, I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? And of course, the answer is yes. In anger, and this is the only time I know of where one of God's servants, that God deals with him in anger. I think it's because of the enormity of the offense when you've been forgiven everything unconditionally and totally, 
that you would hold on to bitterness against a brother or sister. In anger, his master turned him over to the jailers to be tortured or tormented until he should pay back all he owed. Now, I don't know about you, but I know those tormentors and those jailers are demons. And God is sovereign enough to use them to humble the ones who need to be humbled. And the last verse says, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother from your heart. The devil is still God's devil. And uh, the kingdom of darkness is still under his control. And he can use them. Sometimes he does. In his sovereignty in ways like that. What did the man owe? The debt had been canceled. The only thing he owed was forgiveness. God was going to accomplish that through this tragic experience. He also is sovereign enough to use Satan's schemes to strengthen God's people in prayer and faith. Oh, that's so important. We have some dear Jewish uh, Christian friends and they come to see us occasionally. And recently they came to our house. And, and they were sharing with us the tremendous burden they were facing. With some problems in the lives of their children. They wanted to protect them. And so as we discussed, we simply told them what we have done. Where we use doctrinal prayer to battle for our children and for our grandchildren when we see great spiritual battle in their lives, we take it to God in prayer and use doctrinal prayer to battle against the evil that's there. And those of you know, we've written a number of them. And one that has been used so powerfully is, is uh, prayer patterns for revival. And prayer number four in that series is a powerful, I believe, spiritual warfare prayer because it follows Ephesians 6 and the great doctrines that God freedom and our victory. And I had no idea of what the Lord was but as I was preparing this message, he called me on the phone. And he said, you know, when we left your house, God had deeply spoken to me he said, I'd read some of your prayers before, but I, I never really got into them. I've been fasting and praying, and I've been just taking those written doctrinal prayers and have prayed them and prayed them and prayed them again. I can't tell you what God has done in my own heart. wants to use the schemes of the devil to make you a man or a woman of God. Truth. So that you battle. And I'm, I need to keep moving to enable believers to show forth God's character 
and attributes of love and grace. My utmost for his highest. In the February 9th devotion, he wrote, Exhaustion means that the vital forces are worn right out. Spiritual exhaustion never comes through sin, but only through service. And whether or not you are exhausted will depend on uh, upon what or where you get your supplies. Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. But he gave him nothing to feed them with. The process of being made broken bread and poured out wine means that you have to let the nourishment for other souls come out of you until they learn to feed on God. They must drain you to the dregs. Be careful that you get your supply or before long you will be utterly exhausted. Have you ever wondered why in this passage uh, the apostle talks about um, uh, look at in chapter 2 verse 7 but we were gentle among you like a mother caring for her children and that's a nursing mother. See a nursing mother is giving of herself to those to whom she ministers. There's an outflow. Jesus called it virtue. Went out of him. And that's the word dunamis. You see, when you genuinely minister to others, it takes a part of you Paul was like a nursing mother. He gave of himself. He was like a loving father. He gave of himself. And you see, you can't do that and not be spiritually exhausted unless the flow in is coming every moment. Every moment. Also to provide validation for God's wrath. Aren't you glad that God's holy wrath is there? Wouldn't it be awful if we had to look forward to an eternity where the devil's on the loose? Where his wrath, God's wrath, did not purge evil? And um, you'll notice there in in, uh, verse... 16, he speaks about that. The wrath of God has come upon them at last. I don't have time to develop that. But um, the devil's activity is really validation in part for that coming day when holy wrath will sweep it all away. The last thoughts are so important this uh, this battle speaks about the intensity of spiritual warfare struggles and the purpose for those. What are the purpose? First of all, to provide believers a universal fellowship with all other believers. Oh, that's so beautifully stated uh, 
in these passages, in uh, chapter 2, 1, 2, and of course in 1 Peter uh, chapter 5. And I just want to read that to you because it so speaks to this issue uh, of um, the fellowship of believers in the battle. You see, we're in it together. Notice how Peter put it, puts it. I begin with verse 5 of chapter 5. Young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. There's no place for pride in spiritual warfare. Only brokenness. Humility. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled, knowing how to deal with your flesh, biblically, and alert, like a sentry on duty. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. He's on the watch for people to devour. Resist him. By the way, I want to stress that word, someone. You see, he can devour a Christian when they become isolated, cut off from that which makes them strong. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of suffering. See, the battle is universal. It's addressed against all believers. No one escapes the battle with the enemy. And there's something wonderful about that because there's a fellowship in being together. We need each other. God has made us members one of another. And the real power to defeat the kingdom of darkness is when God's people come together in the oneness for which our Lord Jesus prayed and begin to see the great strength that God has given in overcoming evil because we are together. Now I'm sure all of you grieved as, as I did over the passing of Charles Schultz. He was kind of an icon in America. He had a way of tweaking us and speaking to us through his cartoons. He was a Christian. He was somewhat of a theologian. And when I heard that he had died, I went and looked for my, in my file, I thought I could find the cartoon and I was going to bring it today because it speaks to this I'm trying to say about how much we need each other. How strong we are when we're very bound together in the local church fellowship with other believers. When we don't isolate ourselves and try to get out there thinking we can do better if we're not around all those failing Christians. But uh, in the cartoon, and I, I can remember it well enough, I can share it with you. Lucy comes in where Charlie's watching his favorite TV program and Lucy goes over and she switches channels 
And she sits looking at hers, and Charlie finally gets up courage enough, and he says, by what authority do you come in and change the channel from my favorite TV program? And Lucy, in the next, she has her hand out. She says, by these five little fingers. <laughs> left alone, they're just weak and can be easily broken. But when I fold them together, <laughs> they become a mighty weapon of authority and power. And in the last cartoon picture, Charlie's walking out looking at Why can't you guys get organized? <laughs> you know, sometimes I think that's how God looks at us. He's made us one. Why don't you see that in the unity of the Spirit, there is tremendous power. Warren Wiersbe writes in his book, uh, the Bible Exposition Commentary, on this passage. A lonely saint is very vulnerable to the attacks of Satan. We need each other in the battles of life. How important. Another purpose of the battle is to provide us with legitimate longings and anticipations for heaven. Every, you remember that's the major message of 1 Thessalonians. Every chapter closes with reference to the Lord is coming and we're going to be with him. And uh, part of the purpose for the battles is to keep us homesick for heaven. I remember as a pastor, often visiting elderly, suffering people, and they were homesick for heaven. I don't know about you, but I don't think it's just because I'm getting older. But it's because of the conditions where the devil and his wickedness is so rampant in the culture, and the awful things that are happening. I just long for him to come. That's not weakness. That's strength. That's the way God planned it. And that's the way he wants us to use the battle to keep homesick for heaven. The purpose of the battle is to provide believers opportunities to use God's authority and witness his power. Now, I don't know about you, but the greatest joy in my life is to lead another person to Christ. Outside of my own salvation, I think that's the greatest joy I ever have. But I would have to share with you, commensurate with it and very close, is the joy of helping a believer who's been under terrible oppression come to freedom. And in ICBC, I think most of you know that our counselors don't charge. And you might think uh, they're not rewarded. But that's not true. They'll never get rich being ICBC counselors. But they have a richness of joy at helping people get free. That's wonderful. And wonderful to enjoy and anticipate. And I can think of wonderful people who serve God today 
in strong and powerful ways because they were helped to freedom. And then, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, to provide believers opportunities to enter into the fellowship with Christ in the suffering. I remember when I used to read those words in Philippians, where Paul longed to know the power of the resurrection and the fellowship of the Lord's sufferings. I would kind of draw back from that second part. I thought, uh, I really don't know whether I want to know that. Well, dear friends, what Paul is really saying, if you study this passage, and we don't have time to develop because my time is gone, but if you really study this passage, then you understand that when you walk where Paul walked and where Jesus walked, you're going to experience the fellowship of the Lord's suffering. The devil will see to that. He will be there. Experience some of that suffering. The devil stops us. Those are not defeat words. Those are triumph words. Only a man of great courage and faith who knew the sovereignty of God could talk. God, who uses the devil's stops to promote God's starts. And that's his plan. That's what we're asking God to do at this conference. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we have sought to look at a text that uh, somehow is very uh, challenging, startling, and yet filled with so much riches, as we focus upon the reality of Satan's uh, purposes and his evil plans and his power. But at the same time, we understand your sovereignty so far exceeds that that it almost uh, makes the devil's efforts seem as though they were not at all. And thank you that you privilege us through the battle uh, to enjoy the oneness that we share together and to use it for your glory. And also to use the weapons victoriously and to experience the fellowship of your sufferings. Set apart the remainder of the conference for great blessings for all who are here. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. We're going to take a break. We will stay on schedule. I invite you, if you want to, to bring your refreshments. They have leftovers from this morning. You can bring those back in here if you want to, but we're going to start with workshop sound bites at 11 o'clock. Um, I need to have my presenters up here on the platform right at 11. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.